Well, hello and good morning. Uh, my name is Pastor Ransom Kent. I'm the pastor here at Grace. So thankful you've joined us for worship this morning. Uh, we continue in our summer series, Kings of Summer. We find ourselves in 2 Kings 21. I'll be reading verses 1 through 6. I'll be reading that passage from the English Standard Version of the Bible. So please follow along again as I read 2 Kings 21, 1 through 6. And then I'll pray for us before we begin our study in this passage. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah his father had destroyed, and he erected altars for Baal and made Asherah, made an Asherah, as Ahab king of Israel had done. And he worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem will I put my name. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his son as an offering and used fortune-telling and omens and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Father, from these Old Testament passages that seem uh, complicated and irrelevant at the surface, you teach us deep things from our hearts. You teach us deep things about yourself. And I pray that today is no different. I pray that today we see the light of your gospel, the truth of who you are, and we feel and know the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives as we study this passage of Scripture. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus our Savior. Amen. So as you know, um, most uh, of my sermons, uh, all of my sermons are planned out well in advance. So uh, I, I get together uh, a couple days in, in the spring and I plan out the entire next year from January to December of sermons. And the result of that, the result of that type of planning is at times when I uh, arrive in my office on Monday morning and I look at the passage that I have chosen, um, I think, all right, I know where we're going. I know what we're going to do and I'm off to the races. And then other times, like this week, I read the passage and I think, oh man, okay, Ransom, all right. What are you going to do with this? And then sometimes that is bolstered by an email, this time from John Tyler, saying, hey, thanks for the necromancer passage. This would be a great, uh, easy way to pick songs for this. Um, well, anyway, that, that's how this week started. I, I read this passage and I thought, oh my, like what, what are we going to learn from this? And then uh, as I studied, I, I gained a hypothesis. And so my hypothesis was that as we looked at this list of sins, Dale Ralph Davis um, wrote a, a commentary for First and Second Kings, uh, 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 and it's a great commentary, I've used it quite a bit, and he calls this passage a pile of paganism. So as we read through this pile of paganism, the egregious acts of the worst king that ever sat on the throne of the kingdom of Judah, uh, my, my hypothesis is that we would discover, or we could discover one sin at the root of all of this pile. So something at the bottom, one sin to rule them all. That's my Last Lord of the Rings reference in the sermon. I mean it. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at the evidence set before us. We're going to look at the evidence in 2 Kings 21. And we're going to see what 
Manasseh put on display. And, and what we see here is he actually uh, puts on display what he cares most about. And, and those things that he put on display, those things that he cares the most about are, are pointing to one thing at the very bottom, one thing underneath at all. So that's we're going to do this morning. We're going to look uh, at the things he displayed as not just his acts of wickedness, but as representations of what he really desired. That's what we're going to do. So let's, let's start looking at the evidence. Turn uh, your eyes to verse 3, the very beginning of verse 3. We're just going to look through the things that Manasseh did. And the first thing that he did, as soon as his father passed away, as soon as he took the throne, is he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed. So first of all, we must just briefly mention, we're going to come back to Hezekiah in a little bit, but Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, was a faithful Judean king. He loved the Lord. He followed the Lord. He was faithful to the Lord. He worshiped God faithfully. And so his son, Manasseh, takes over, and the first thing he does is he undoes the reforms that his father had, had done. His father had removed the high places. Now, what's the big deal about high places? You see, God had commanded his people that they were to worship him in one way and in one place, and that was at the temple that Solomon built. And so it was necessary... Uh, uh, to remove the high places, even if the high places, these little altars or, or places of worship built on the mountains, even if they were dedicated to Yahweh, the God of Israel, they were to be removed because God wanted His people to worship in one place. And so, uh, because of that evil, Hezekiah had removed them, the first thing that Manasseh did was build them back up. As a side note to this idea of of God giving this commandment of, of worship, uh, this is not just something that the Israelites have to tune into or had to tune into. We have to tune into how God desires to be worshipped. God uh, is the one who establishes very clearly the way that He desires to be worshipped. Not us. It's not man that determines the method or the means. God tells us that. He clearly communicates it to us. So, as we look at this evidence, back to the story here, Manasseh, first of all, the first display of what he cares about was to rebuild the high places. Now, he didn't just rebuild them and set up altars to Yahweh. We see the rest of verse 3, what he did. So, in those high places, what did he do? He erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah, as Ahab the king of Israel had done. And he worshipped all the hosts of heaven and serve them. Now, that kind of refers to something later, but on the, at these high places, he, he built altars to the to god baal and his partner the asherah now if you recall we we talked about some characters called ahab and jezebel jezebel came from a, a country just north of israel the northern kingdom which is now exiled uh, she came from there and what did she bring with her the baal she worshiped baal he's a fertility god asherah is his partner and so uh, this this religion that manasseh is setting up at the high places is a fertility religion this religion uses, and guard little ears, it's just a technical term here, but this religion uses sex to influence the fertility of the ground and the people who serve, serve that God. So what Manasseh was doing is he, he resurrected or brought in this new idol worship that would, that would gain uh, not just the fertility of the ground and good crops, but that his people would grow. They would gain power and influence. It's a worship aimed at personal increase, 
You worship Baal, not because Baal deserves it. You worship Baal so that you will see growth and fertility in your life. And so, we keep digging through this pile of paganism. We see that he rebuilt the high places. He set those things up as altars to Baal and, and the Asherah. And then he continues uh, to get, make things worse. Look at verse 4. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, in Jerusalem, I will put my name. So, not only is, is Manasseh desiring to offer alternative worship for the people of Israel, that's what the high places are, they're alternatives, meaning if, if the temple is still intact, you can come here and worship Yahweh, but out there, you worship Baal. You can do one or the other. No, what does he do? He moves into the temple of God, and, and this, the temple of God is the place where the Lord had said, I will put... I will, in Jerusalem, I will put my name. Meaning there's this stage, the temple in Jerusalem where God was to be on display and worshipped. And what he has done is he's removed God from that stage and built a, an idol to the Asherah. We learn that in verse 7. That's what the temple is now dedicated to. Asherah worship, fertility worship. And so, he's not just providing alternatives. He is replacing the very worship of God in the temple. It now stands as a fertility cult, a place of worship for a fertility cult. And so the holiest of holies, imagine this, the holiest of holies is now hijacked for immorality. It doesn't take much to imagine what a, fertil what a, what a temple to a fertility cult is like in its worship. It's now the place where God had built for Himself through His servant Solomon, a place to be worshipped alone is now a brothel in a sense. And so, his desire to have a fertile land and it drives him to replace the worship of Yahweh in the temple. He wants this reward of faithful worship to fertility god, Baal. And it's now led to all kinds of blasphemies. And so it goes further. He didn't just put an Asherah in, in, inside the temple. No, he, he also kind of takes over the courtyard. It says here, in verse number 5, and he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And so you, we could go through the whole diagram of, of the temple, but there's several different levels of courts and the out, outer court. It, it has a purpose for, for worship of Yahweh, but now he has taken that over and what has he done? He has set up altars to the host of the heavens. So the sun, the moon, the stars, probably Venus, things like that. And so he's worshiping the skies. Why? We're going to go to Wikipedia. Wikipedia defines astrology like this. Astrology is a pseudoscience that claims divine information about human affairs and terrestrial events by studying the movements and relative positions of celestial objects. This is exactly what's happening in the courtyard of God's temple. So think about this. Uh, uh, by worshiping Baal and the Asherah, Manasseh is trying to manipulate the, the increase of his kingdom. He wants to see fertility. He wants to fill his storehouses with food. He wants to grow his people great. And so he has bigger armies and more population and more taxes to be collected, you see? But, but that's not enough. The increase is not enough. He needs to, to secure that increase. He needs to secure that, that success. And so what does he do? He looks to the stars to determine what obstacles might be in his way. 
It only makes sense. He, he does not want to leave anything to chance. All right, Baal and Asherah, increase, increase, cause fertility, cause growth. Okay, other gods, now show me what's coming down the line. Show me what might happen. Help safeguard this success that I am working toward. And so what do we see so far? Manasseh is working hard to create a growing kingdom. That's what he's doing. He's working very hard. He's doing construction projects. He's he's being proactive. He's working hard to create a growing kingdom. And and he he wants to make sure that any potential obstacles on lockdown. Now, if you think of it that way, he doesn't seem like such a bad guy. (laughs) He's working hard. He's trying to be prepared. But we are confronted once again with this awful reality. We talked a little bit about this last week. Now, what, what is important to remember is that Manasseh, in whatever he's pursuing here, he is a true believer. He's a true believer. He is dedicated. He's committed. And he wants to show that he is committed. So what does he do? Beginning of verse 6. And he burned his son as an offering. Here we are again. Israel. What was one of their crimes that they committed throughout the, king, the evil kings of Israel that caused their removal from the promised land. It was child sacrifice. And here we have Manasseh, king of Judah, son of faithful Hezekiah. He's removed Yahweh uh, uh, from the temple. He has built up high places to false gods. He has, now he's looking to the stars to determine his future. How can he show he's committed? He burns his own child on the fire. I, I w- this week I was thinking, I have two sons, Deacon and Silas two sons, of a daughter too named Acadia, and I, I was going through the thought process. I felt like it was helpful for me to go through the proce- thought process of what would it take? What would my attitude have to be? What would I have to, what kind of uh, conclusions would I have to make for me to set one of my children in a fire for sacrifice? I mean, let's eliminate psychosis, so I guess that could be one thing. If you're completely crazy, Maybe that's one thing, but what, in a logical mind, what would we have to do to get there? And I, I came up with these things. First of all, we would have to, de- to deny the potential life of that child. So we have to look at that human being and say, whatever they might be able to accomplish, whatever they might experience, that isn't important. We have to cut it short. We have to, de- to first of all, deny the potential life of that child. The second thing we'd have to do, I'm convinced, is we'd have to ignore whatever signs of life are present. (laughs) Think about this. Before the fire, that child has a beating heart, moving limbs, a smiling or or, or a, a face that reflects emotion, a voice that speaks, eyes that blink, ears that that hear, hair that grows. All of those things. So that's before the fire. But then, first of all, you have to ignore all those things beforehand, which might be easy. You could probably do that. But then there's the moment after the fire. And I don't mean to be gruesome here, but let's be real. The moment after the fire, there will be signs of life coming from the fire. The screams. The call for help. In order for this to take place, in verse 6, the very first phrase of verse 6, you would have to ignore all of those signs of life. 
You'd have to. The third thing is you'd have to determine that the most important thing, the most important thing is me right now. <laughs> Not just me, but me right now. You'd have to arrive at this conclusion that the most important thing in the world is me right now. And nothing can threaten whatever is going on in that place. Now, as I wrote these three things down in my notes and I, I was writing this sermon, I, I feel obligated, I feel morally obligated, I feel convicted to say this is exactly what abortion is. This is abortion. What is abortion other than denying the potential life of a child and ignoring the signs of life that are present and in that moment, uh, making me right now very important. Now, I know there's lots of reasons people say they give for abortion, but the fact that to snuff out a life for whatever reason, before it, it can be saved, before it can live its life, ignoring all signs of life, it has to be made in this place of what is most important, me right now. Now, while placing your child on the altar of your own life, in, in a sense, burning them for your own benefit, that, that is what is going on here. This is an evil in the sight of God. I want to encourage Christians to, to not look too far down our nose at those who have experienced this, who, who've chosen to do this. And, and, and I, I say that because there, I think we emanate or we um, sometimes experience an attitude that's in the same family as, as this attitude that, that Manasseh had arrived at. You see, I was thinking about myself, my own self-centeredness as a parent that causes me uh, to choose my own well-being over my child's. And I, I would say maybe relatively small ways compared to burning your child on an altar. But think about this. Maybe sometimes it's my anger over their bad behavior. Maybe sometimes it's me choosing to look at my phone rather than engage them in play and in their life. But those attitudes are in the same family. That self-centered attitude can lead to that other thing. As an example, I'm going to rewind a little bit. This is uh, in 2 Kings 20, 16-19. So here, here's the deal. In verse 1 of this passage, it says Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign. Now, all scholarly uh, study points to the fact that this was likely a co-regency with his father Hezekiah. So Hezekiah, when his son Manasseh turned 12, being the, the heir to the throne, he brought Manasseh in, and for 10 years, this is really good leadership demonstrated by Hezekiah, for 10 years he co-led with his son, teaching him as an apprentice, as a co-regent. And so this uh, this story that I'm about to relay to you, imagine Hezekiah is there, but Manasseh is right beside him. This is one of the last things that happened before Hezekiah died that was recorded in the history books. And so what's happened here is uh, uh, Assyria is losing power. This is kind of a political uh, update, what's going on in the world at this point. Assyria is losing power. Babylon's gaining power. Babylon sends an envoy to meet with the king of Judah. And what happens? Hezekiah welcomes him and he he decides to give him a tour to show off the kingdom. So what does he do? He shows him the store of food. He shows him the temple full of gold and silver. He shows him his treasure store, his armory, his stables, his army, his people. He gives him a, a, a grand tour of all the power of, of the kingdom of Judah. And the envoy leaves and the prophet Isaiah 
comes and talks to Hezekiah, and he says, did you, what did you do? Did you show the, the envoy around? What, what happened? And, and Hezekiah says, no, I showed him everything. I really showed him the whole, the whole kit and caboodle. He, sh- he saw everything. And Isaiah, in this kind of moment of, of, of woe, says to Hezekiah, listen, someday, everything you showed that envoy, your children included, this entire kingdom is going to be crushed. And, and all of the things you showed are going to be shipped off to Babylon. That's what he says. And here's the reaction of Hezekiah in 2 Kings 20. So faithful Hezekiah, think about this. Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. <laughs> so doom and gloom, doom and despair. And Hezekiah says, oh, this is good news. And then it, then it explains, for he thought, this is the narrator, for he thought, why not if there will be peace and security in my days? Think about this. Doom and despair. Your children will be carried off to Babylon. Everything you showed, that envoy, will be taken from you. This kingdom will be gone. And Hezekiah's response is, well, as long as it's not in my days. If there's peace and prosperity now, whatever. You can't tell me that that attitude brought to an extreme doesn't end where where Manasseh is in the beginning of verse 6. And he burnt his son by the fire. It goes on, and we keep digging. The second part of verse 6. He used fortune-telling and omens and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. So not only did Manasseh look to the skies for the future, he didn't want to just use the stars and the moon and the sun to, to, to warn him of obstacles. He turned also to below. He turned to the dark powers, those who claimed to have a, 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 a way with the dead, okay, with the, the dark spirits. He wanted to understand the dark powers and by understanding them, move them in his favor. So Manasseh, again, Baal and the Asherah, make me great. The, 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 the gods of the heavens, tell me what's coming. And now the, the demons and the dark powers, show me how to, to, pre- to prevent any obstacles from entering in my way. This is a lot, okay? It's meant to be a lot. It's meant to be an intense very concentrated passage of Scripture. Manasseh was the worst. (laughs) The worst. And so then, at the end of verse 6, we get the verdict. We're not surprised by it. It says here, he did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. He had completely abandoned the teaching of the Lord, of Yahweh, of God, the God of the Israelites. He completely abandoned it. And this is the response that we would expect. God is angry. God is angry. So that's the pile of paganism. That's the evidence before us. And so the question then is, what's the one thing? What's at the root of it all? I think there's a lot of potential answers that we could arrive at first. And so maybe we could, I think, very easily make the case he wanted wealth, or he wanted greatness, or he wanted reputation, or he wanted acceptance amongst the the kings that surrounded him. I think all of those are true, but I think they're symptoms. They're not the one thing. They're not the one thing. My study this week led me to, to believe that the, the one thing that Manasseh wanted, the one thing above everything else, was control. Control. Think about it. He wanted to grow his kingdom. 
He wanted fertility and success. And so, in order to gain that, he turned the knobs and he, he played with the criteria of, of, okay, what do I have to do? What do I have to be? And so he, he worshipped Baal and Asherah. He, he wanted to prevent obstacles from taking that away from him. So what did he do? He looked at the skies. He looked down to the dead. Witchcraft. To try and, and figure out what's coming next so I can prevent losing this, this thing. And he wanted to make sure that he gave evidence of his absolute devotion to these religious things, these things trying to control the outcome of his life. And so what did he do? The ultimate sacrifice, he burned his child on the fire. Manasseh wanted to control the outcomes of his life. That's what Manasseh wanted. That's the one thing. Manasseh wanted control. The problem is there's a big reality <laughs> that confronts Manasseh in this desire. There's, there's this really big piece of truth that undoes it, that, that it causes him difficulty, and that is that God and God alone is in control of every person's life, of this entire universe's movement. God and God alone is in control. Write that down. God and God alone is in control. Now, this, that reality confronts Manasseh. It also confronts us. We desire to control our lives. We desire to control the outcomes. And yet, there's this reality, church. There's this reality, those who are not Christians listening right now, there's a reality that says God is in control. And there's nothing we can do about it. And so in our lives, any sense of control that we have, any sense of control that we have, any kind of control that we grasp at, those senses, those things we're reaching for, they are false. And they're idolatry. That's what they are. Again, Dale Ralph Davis says, paganism, think about this. This is an interesting quote. Paganism is the way, is the way I manage my life over and against the various powers that may determine it. So as we as Manasseh dabbled and committed to these pagan ways of worship, what was he doing? He was trying to turn the knobs of his life to, to control the outcome. Trying to correct the flow of events to, to get what he wanted. To control the end result. In this moment, when I reached this single sin, it, it, it was not what I expected, honestly, and it slapped me across the face. I felt, and still do, feel deep conviction about this. You see, my sin, Pastor Ransom's sin, looks a lot like Manasseh's sin. <laughs> now, take it easy. I'm not reading my horoscope. I'm not, uh, uh, I'm not uh, building altars to fertility gods anywhere, so not that. But, but if, you, if you take the root thing, the control of one's life, and you look at Manasseh, all these things make sense. And, and, and as I look at that sin in Manasseh's life, I know that that is a sin in my life. Ongoing. And so if you're anything like me, what do you desire? You desire greatly to orchestrate the outcome of your life in the day-to-day. -day. You desire that. See, I want to make sure I'm prepared for every potential obstacle 
and so I can avoid those pitfalls. I want that. But it just isn't possible. It just isn't possible. I was thinking, we just finished our road trip uh, to see my folks in Maine, and it's like 2,500 miles uh, of total driving, and I was thinking about how the concept that really uh, represents this idea of false control or a false sense of control is driving on the interstate. So there we are, I'm driving the truck, my hands are on the wheel, my foot is on the gas, it can be on the brake whenever I choose. Yet any one of the, the drivers around me who are psychotics, right, they could swerve or check their phone or something and, and, and there I've lost control. But even if there were no cars on the interstate, even if there was no one else around me, one small piece of shrapnel could pop my tire and there goes all control. The, the sense of controlling my vehicle while I drive. I'm, not, I'm driving like a bus driver right now. It's not how I drive. Usually it's like this and it's really cool. Um, the, the sense of control over my vehicle is false. Now, I do everything I can to control it the best that I can. I'm called to keep my family safe while I drive. Yet, the, the, the overwhelming truth is that our lives are in the hand of an almighty God. All the time. No matter what. And see, it's Manasseh rejected that sovereignty. He rejected it. No thanks. God in control? I don't think so. We'll see about that. And what's... Good to note is that, as with every person who ever tried to control their life, there is an irony at play in Manasseh's life. And so we have to jump actually to the, the, the Chronicles, which is similar to the Kings. There's some, they, take, they took the text of the Kings, First and Second Kings, and the scholars added in information and, and rewrote it a little bit to reflect uh, the, when, when God brought Israelites back from exile. And so uh, in 2 Chronicles 33, a story is included in the story of Manasseh that's important for us to hear. So I'm going to read this to you. So in 2 Chronicles 33, verses 1 through 9, is the same as 2 Kings 21, 1 through 9, I think. And, and so that all takes place, and we read the same things, and we read the pile of paganism, we see all the same evidence, and here's a little piece of the story that the chronicler decides to add. Listen to this. This is verses 10 and 11. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. Okay? Therefore, meaning, here's what happened because they paid no attention. The Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria, who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. Now, capturing with hooks. This is a practice of the Assyrians. It's been historically proven that this is what they would do. They had this contraption that was a hook, and it had a chain. And what they would do to their captors is they would put the hook through their nose. I'm not sure exactly where, but it, would, it was through the flesh of their nose. And the way they would guide them around or lead them around was by pulling the chain. So Manasseh, the king of Judah, he was captured by the Assyrians. And what did they do? They put a hook through his nose, and they led him on a long walk from Judah to Assyria. For someone, think about this, for someone who loves to control everything, <laughs> for someone who desires more than anything else control of their circumstances, this is the bottom of the barrel. 
Not only did Manasseh not control anything, he couldn't even control in this moment the way his face would turn. Someone else controlled that for him. And so, Manasseh doesn't have control anymore. (laughs) It was never his in the first place. He never did. None of us ever do. And and as I was studying this week, I I stumbled across 2 Kings 19. This is fascinating. This is before Manasseh was born. And and what's happening is the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, is is bearing down on Judah. Hezekiah is is afraid. They have a very large, powerful army. And, And Isaiah says, listen, remain faithful to God. And Sennacherib says, oh yeah, sure, go to the the God of God named Yahweh. Go to him. Sure, that'll be fine. Let's see how that goes. How, how Yahweh can match up against me. So this very egotistical guy. Very, um, very haughty, right? And so this is what's happening. He's saying, sure, go to your God. He doesn't match up to me, Sennacherib. And so here's the prophecy from Isaiah about Sennacherib. Listen to this. Have you not heard? This is God speaking. Have you not heard? I determined it long ago. I planned from days of old what now I bring to pass. But I know you're sitting down and you're going out and you're raging against me. This is fascinating. Listen, because you have raged against me and your complacency has come into my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth and I will turn you back on the way in which you came. This is why this is fascinating. This is why we should pay attention the will and sovereignty of God cannot be overcome in anyone's life. Any more than Manasseh could overcome the power of the Assyrians when they put the hook in his nose and led him all the way back home. No more than than the king of Assyria could stand against the will of God. God is in control. We are not. That's the bottom line. And so, out of the story of Manasseh, I have some questions for us. I have some application questions. I want us to listen to these. I want us to take, sit up and take notice and, and really spend some time thinking about this. Let's prayerfully go to the Lord that He might reveal the answers to us in our hearts about us personally. So the first question, what do the displays of our life reveal about what we care about? Think about Manasseh. What did he do? As soon as Hezekiah, his father, died, he erased Yahweh from Judean culture. Poof, gone. I want it gone. Why? He didn't care about Yahweh. He didn't care about it. What did he care about? Control. He was going to turn the knobs and determine the outcome. So for us, what altars are we building? What, have we, what altars have we built in our life? How do we spend our money? What are we proud of? So when people ask how life is going, what do we hope they ask about? When, when, when we have something exciting to share, what are we sharing with our neighbors? Hey, I bought this new thing. Or what are, we, what are we doing? What are we sharing? On the flip side of that, what are we embarrassed? What do we hope no one asks about? What do we hope no one asks about? One of the things I learned as I was studying is that it was actually very posh in these days to, to worship the gods of the heavens. So think about this. Uh, so if someone were to come to Manasseh, this is not in scriptures, I'm just saying, if someone were to come to him and say, hey, how's Yahweh worship going? It would be like, no, 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 we don't do that anymore. That was my dad's old-fashioned whatever weirdness. You know what I do? I worship the gods of the heavens. He, he was embarrassed. He would be embarrassed of the thing he did not care about and he would present the thing that he cared most about. 
So what are we displaying? And what does that communicate about what we care most about? That's the first set of questions. So what do the displays of our life reveal about what we really care about? Here's the second question. How are we trying to control our lives? You see, we control things to get the things we want. That's, that's why we control things. We, we set a goal. This is what I want. This is the outcome I desire. Here's what I want my life to look like. Here's the things I want to have. Here's what I want people to think about me. And then what do we do? We go about turning the knobs, adjusting the settings. We, we say, if I just have this, man, I will feel this. If, if I just had this thing or did this thing or could accomplish this thing, then people would know this about me or accept me or, or, or think this about me. If I could just show people what I'm capable of, my reputation would be great. They would praise me. These are all statements that, that are us manipulating the, the things in our life, trying to control the outcome. But there's a better way. Well, there better be, because let's, let's face the reality. This motion, turning the knobs, adjusting the settings, trying to control the outcome, it doesn't work. We can't. We don't. We do not control our lives in any way. And yet we, we sweat and bleed to try to control the, the minute little details of our life so that we might gain this outcome that we're not in charge of. So that's the first thing. There better be a better way because that isn't a way that's possible to control our lives. But I want to say this. To submit to the control of God ought not to be a begrudging submission. Oh, I guess. Hook in my nose. Here we go. That's not what it should be. Why? Because, listen, the Scriptures give us someone to serve. God's reaching out to man is not a tyrant. No, He is the one that we worship and we believe in and we have faith in is one who figuratively was led with a hook in His nose to the cross. You see, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed to God, if there's any other way, Lord, if there's any other way, Father, may it be. And yet, what did He do? There was no other way. This was the plan of salvation from the beginning of time. And so what did He do? He submitted Himself even unto death on a cross. That's who we serve. That's who controls. Why did He do that? Why did Jesus live and die and come back to life and then ascend? Why did He do that? What does that accomplish? You know, what it you know what it accomplishes? It secures the outcome of our life. Do you hear me? What do we want most of all? To, to control the outcome of our life. What Jesus did on the cross. His, his death and His resurrection secures the outcome of our lives. So listen, we will know trial. We will know pain. We will know difficulty. We will know ridicule, church. These are guarantees. But guess what? In the end, it is all made right and secured by the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and His return. 
That is the outcome of our lives. The promise, the payout, the inheritance from Christ. That's the outcome of our lives, church. So yes, God is in control. Yes, He is. Fact for everybody listening, for everybody not listening, for everybody that's alive and everybody that's dead, everybody that will be alive. God is in control. Yet, He has comforted us by telling us how it's all going to go down. <laughs> I want to go back to Manasseh to finish. Back to 2 Chronicles 33. It's good to see this side of the story. So what happened? Manasseh chained up with bronze chains, hook in his nose, led with zero control to Assyria. And listen to what happens. This is verses 12 to 13, the next two verses after what I read before. And he, Manasseh, was in distress. He entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. And then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. <laughs> Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Every single piece of false control was removed from Manasseh's life. And where did it lead him? To the place where he realized, I don't control anything. Only God does. And so I go to him for mercy. And what did God give? Mercy. Listen, Manasseh was a, is a bad dude. In, in 2 Kings 21, 1-6, he is not a good guy. And yet here we have God having mercy on him and restoring him. Let this be a, be a truth that we can't escape. No one is beyond the pale, church. If you're out there and you think you've done something that God could never forgive, look to Manasseh. It's not true. And so my call to us, the Scripture's call to us this morning is as we look at the experience of Manasseh, as and because of what the Lord has done in His life and death and resurrection, here's what I want us to do. Let us give up all the false sense of control that we think we have. We don't have it. And instead, let's know and respond and recognize that what? The Lord is God. Let me pray for us. Lord, You are much better to us than we deserve. We run around trying to manipulate the outcomes of our lives every day. We desire control. We think we have control at times. When we lose control, we look to You and say, what are You doing? When all along, we're, we're flailing about. And so I pray for myself. I pray for myself, Lord. I, I pray for my church. I pray for anyone who's listening, anyone who, who reads this passage of Scripture and hears its truth, I, I pray for us that, that we would give those things up. Help us like Manasseh to, to just submit to You, a loving God who is in control, to trust You, to give You our lives, 
come to you to receive mercy. I repent of my struggle for control. I cannot win. And so I must give up. But I'm not giving up to a tyrant. No, I'm giving up to a God that loves me and came and lived and died and came back and then ascended for me. To save me. A Manasseh-like sinner. So this morning I pray that we would let go of those things and grab hold of our Savior who is in control. We love you. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.